So the person you're looking at is David. I guess I look a little different. People have been telling me they don't recognize me. I was uh, on Zoom with my nephew, Dami, who's three. He lives in Santa Barbara last night, and he really looked confused. You know, kids don't try to hide their confusion on their face. And he said, are you a new Uncle David? <laughs> are you, what did he say? It was something like, are you a different Uncle David? Or No, it's still the same guy. So I figured I was already 80% bald anyway, so I might as well go the rest. And I mean, look at some, some of the people in here look so good. So I'm, I thought I would copy them. <laughs> are you guys having a good summer? It's good to see everybody. God bless everybody for being here. I want to talk from the 119th Psalm. Who's read the whole thing? The whole 119th Psalm? Most people, it's, it's the longest chapter in the Bible. It just goes on page after page, but it's really worth reading. So if you haven't read the 119th Psalm, I recommend that you do that this week. Put that at the top of your list. All right. I will say, though, I won't lie to you. There are some parts that make me pause. They just make me pause for a second and think. And I'll give you one example. This is verse 14 from the 119th Psalm. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. And, uh, you know, you can imagine people, people how they rejoice in great riches. Has anybody seen those old videos? I think they're mostly from the 90s of, uh, of the, when they show up at someone's house and surprise them with the, the big win. Like uh, Publisher's Clearinghouse, I think his name was Ed McMahon. They would show up with the camera crew, and they had the huge oversized checks for a million dollars, and the people had no idea, and they opened their front door. And what do they do? They freak out, don't they? They scream, they hug, they cry, and it's like it's the best thing that ever happened to them. People like getting oversized checks for a million dollars. Would you agree with that? Can I get an amen? They rejoice. You never saw anybody rejoice that much. You know, we humans are a funny group. We can be like, you know, what's, what's something that's a good thing? Oh, you know, she said yes to my marriage request. No, that hasn't happened to me, but, um, oh, oh, good, that ha- all right, cool. Or, oh, Jesus saved me from my sins, I'm going to heaven. Great. Oh, what's this? I found a $20 bill on the ground? Yes! This is the best thing that's ever happened to me. You know how we can be like, it's we're a funny group. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. And I think to myself, really? I mean, how does that work exactly? Let's see. What's one of the Old Testament statutes? Um, how about the one about no eating shellfish? So does, it would be like, thank you that I don't get to eat lobster. All right, I'm so happy about that. Is that really what the guy was talking about? Okay. Here's another one. Psalm 119, 131. I open my mouth and pant, longing for your commandments. You pant? Longing for his commandments? Like a dog? Like, okay, that would be, let's see. (sighs) Thank you that I get to honor my parents. I'm so happy about that. I'm panting. Come on. Is that really? Okay. I'm just being silly right now. Um. I am going to come back to that in a second, though, because I think you'll find that the Bible really is just as good as this psalm talks about, and that's what I want to talk with you about today. But I do need to make a confession before we get into that, and this is, I'm sorry to have to do this, but there's no way around it. 
I have to tell you, sometimes I watch YouTube clips of old British parliamentary debates. And I know it's really sad and really messed up. And I should feel ashamed of myself. You know, there are a lot of really super popular videos on YouTube. Some of them have billions with a B of views. And most of them are hip-hop videos. Some of the kids will know what I'm talking about. You know, the, there's a reason they call it hip-hop. It's because all they do is sway their hips and hop around. And I, for one, would pay the $20 that I found on the ground to not have to watch those videos. But give me a, an old British parliamentary debate with their fairy tale accents that you can't believe is real. You think it should be from a costume movie, but they really talk like that. And their, you know, their subtle British senses of humor where they, they insult somebody and it takes the person five minutes to realize that they've been, because it's so subtle. And it's just funny, you know. Um, but one of the best ones, and I am going somewhere with this, it's actually meaningful. But one of the best ones was a lady named Margaret Thatcher, Prime Minister from 79 to 90. And you watch these videos of her and you know, the way they sit, they oppose each other face to face on the, the, the front bench and the other front bench of the other party face each other. And you see the opposition, and they're this grim looking bunch of men in suits trying to stare her down and intimidate her. And she's kind of a nice looking lady. She looks like she might make you a cup of tea and serve you a cookie, and tell you about her cat. But then she would get up there and she would just demolish them. And year after year, argument after argument, she would, with a smile and a twinkle in her eye, win every debate. And it's, you know, if you're kind of a nerd, it's kind of fun to watch. But she's the one, the Iron Lady they called her, because she was so tough. And uh, they made a movie about her called The Iron Lady uh, with Meryl Streep. And she's the one that said, you are your thoughts. And I thought that was really interesting, coming from someone that you really respect, who lived a life that was very influential. You are your thoughts. And she went on to say, your thoughts become your words. Your words become your actions. Your actions become your habits. Your habits become your character, and your character is who you are. You are your thoughts. It's thought-provoking. Let me ask you this. What is the most important thought you have? You, some of you, if you're over, I'd say, 40, might remember those old Rolodexes with note cards and it would have people's addresses and phone numbers and you could push a button and it would give you the letter. Kids, this was before smartphones when we had to look things up to find our contacts and it was called a Rolodex. And if you had all your thoughts on a Rolodex and you could push a button for your most important thought and it would scroll through all your thoughts so you could say, what's so what are some of my thoughts? Um, for me, I have a thought in my head, don't pet a wet dog, they smell. That's one of my thoughts. Or some people might say, um, Aliens built the pyramids. I saw that last week from Elon Musk, the guy that's sending the rockets up to Mars. And Egypt was not happy. The country of Egypt was mad that he said that. They were like, no. Okay, so that's a thought. What is your most important thought in your Rolodex? I've quoted the great mid-20th century preacher and author A.W. Tozer before when he said, what you think about God is the most important thing about you. There's no other belief you can have that will have such an impact on your life, on your entire eternity, than what you believe about God. Is he real? Is he good? Does he love me? Should I listen to him? How you answer those questions will shape everything else about you, for better or worse.
So, how can we find out about God if he's that important to our lives? Well, we chiefly know God through the written word as found in the Bible. We chiefly know God right here. I, uh, I heard a lecture from a very good evangelical Christian professor, Harvard educated, and he said, the only way we know God is through the Bible. And I couldn't 100% agree, although I got where he was coming from, but I know that for me, I've experienced his presence in ways that, um, you know, the, the presence that I've felt at different times, and all the time, but sometimes very powerfully, uh, especially his love has impacted me, you know, among the most important influences in my life. And I feel like I've learned about God through his presence. So we do, you know, we do learn about God through his presence and through his voice. But even then, we understand who God is and what that means uh, with the Bible as a foundation. So even for our experiences and for his voice, the Bible is both a foundation and it's kind of a fence, too, to mix metaphors because it keeps us, it keeps our beliefs from wandering off the reservation into la-la land. You know, sometimes in the church, you have to be like reined in. Okay, here's the parameters. It's in the Word of God. And if someone is saying something that's not in the Bible, then it says test of spirits. And we don't agree with anything that's not backed up by Scripture. So the Bible is providing answers to life's most important question. Who is God? Who is God? If I can get that one question right, every other question sorts itself out. Those three words, who is God, illuminate a starting point for us of a journey that will never end. We can learn on that topic forever and delight in the journey more and more and yet never learn all there is to know because God is infinite. And we will do that. We have a whole amazing journey ahead of us of learning about the wonders of God and we can start that journey now. Sometimes people want to wait until heaven. I'll learn about God in heaven right now. I want to live my life. You know, the thief on, his, on the cross made a decision, and he took the first step in knowing about God with some of his last breaths. You know the story? He said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. As he was dying, he took the first step toward knowing about God. And I'm sure he's very glad he did that. He's in heaven now. Jesus said, this day you will be with me in paradise. And, but he didn't, need to, he didn't need to wait until the very end to start that journey. We were meant to start that journey right now. So what about himself has God revealed to us, and where can we find that revelation? Out of all the things he could have chosen to reveal, the infinite qualities that he possesses, he has chosen to reveal some of those things to us for this life with our finite brains. What can we understand? And those things have been revealed to us as foundations, and they're right here. And it's been done just for you. I hope you understand that, just for you. My dad likes to say the Bible is the only book where the author talks to you while you read it. And for most books, that would be a bit weird, you know, to have the author sitting there whispering at you while you read. That might be kind of awkward. But with God, he does it well. Those of you who know me have heard this before but it's worth retelling. When I was 24 years old, I was in Scotland at the University of St. Andrews working on the graduate program, and I was having a hard time. I uh, was lonely in a new country. The professor that I was supposed to be working with one-on-one -on -one for the whole degree turned out to be kind of a, a jerk, and uh, 
he was just focused on his own book. And he didn't seem to really care about teaching me anything. And, um, you know, I wasn't right with God at the time, and I was just unhappy. So one day I, I felt I needed some encouragement. This was pretty late, and I hadn't opened my Bible in a long time. And I don't recommend that, by the way. And so I decided I'll open my Bible. I'm just going to point at a verse. And whatever verse I point to, that's what God is saying to me to encourage me right now. So I did it, and it uh, didn't work out the way I expected. I got to a verse, Jeremiah 50, 31. I remember very clearly. It says, Behold, I am against you, O most haughty one, says the Lord of hosts, for your day has come, the time that I will punish you. Okay. Thanks, Lord. And I, you know, it's funny now. I didn't laugh at the time. I said, God, I feel like you're mocking me. And I actually kind of did one of these, tossed the Bible across the room. Got to confess that one, whoops. Didn't get struck by lightning, so that was good. You notice how the laughter stops as soon as I say that part. Um, but I didn't mention that little tantrum of the soul to anybody. And I probably would have forgotten about it. It's one of those things you don't want to remember about yourself. But I woke up the next morning to an email from my sister, Sarah, from America. I have it still. This is 2004. Had another dream that you told me that you were going to make things right with God. Sorry, I don't know why I keep dreaming this. It's not like I think about it all the time or anything. You said that you've been annoyed lately, though, because you were trying to hear him by just flipping randomly through the Bible. And, so I lost my place, and you felt like it kept mocking you. I said that maybe God isn't wanting you to try to hear him that way. You laughed and said that you know. I did know. That was her dream. Imagine waking up to that email after throwing a little tantrum the night before. You know, God could have struck me with lightning for throwing the Bible. Uh, but God is so good, he didn't do that. Instead, he sent my sister a dream. He did have answers for me. He does have answers for you. You guys know this. I'm preaching to the choir here. Good answers. And what he wanted was to talk me through one, one by one, through the answers that he has for me, as I read scripture as a lifestyle. He didn't want me to ignore him for weeks and months and then try to do a mystical, you know, pointing, whatever that is. It's almost like witchcrafty. It's almost like trying to do a spell. You know, it's, I don't like it. It's, it's better to seek him. You know? He didn't want me to do it that way. He wanted me to do it his way. So when we know more, when we realize what this book means to us, it's a one-on-one -on -one learning session with the creator of the universe. We realize that we should rejoice in his word more than riches. And we should pant for his word. I think a really sane reaction is to really love this word. It sounds completely opposite of what the world does. But that's sanity. I love what it says in John chapter 6. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You, only you, no one else. The time has come for the church to make a radical decision. And I know many of you, most of you have made that decision. The more the world dishonors and tries to discredit the Bible, the more we should cherish and embrace it. It's our only light in otherwise pitch darkness. That's what it says. Psalm 119, 105 for me, I can't, I can't read this without hearing Amy Grant singing it, but she said, and the Bible says, your word, thy word, is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. 
I love that image. Now think about this. If the Bible, if his word is our only light, then those without his word are what? Lost in darkness. The imagery the Bible uses for those who try to journey outside of the word's light is stark and it's sobering. It says, they are people lost in darkness. It goes on, in another place, they are blind leading the blind into a pit. It says they set up a snare and trap themselves. They dig a pit and fall into it. It says my people die for lack of knowledge. This is serious business. Fools die for lack of judgment. I'm trying not to look at anybody when I say that because I'm not, none of you here. It says there's a way that seems good to a man, but in the end it leads only to death. On the other hand, Leviticus 18.5 promises that those who obey his commands will live by them. Live and not die. As you may know, the basic human condition is to run our lives completely off the rails in the absence of God's word. I know that everyone within earshot of this message has at times felt sorrow that we live in a society with no guardrails for young people. Parents need to be the guardrails nowadays because they're not out there in the general culture anymore. There used to be guardrails in society to keep kids from sabotaging their own lives. Uh, schools used to teach the Bible. Um, my mom remembers learning the Lord's Prayer in school. And the Ten Commandments, I think, was taken down in most schools in the 70s. It didn't used to be that kids are raised without any guardrails, but that's where we're at right now. And what kind of things are we seeing from that? Well, we've had two deaths in, the, in Jackson County from the coronavirus, last time I saw the count. And any death is a tragedy. But comparatively speaking, we've been lightly affected. However, every year, year after year, dozens of young people in Jackson County die from drug overdoses. 70,000 a year in the United States die from drug overdoses, most of them young. Every year in our country, sorry, every year in our county, dozens more enter adulthood here in the valley. They enter adulthood seemingly incapable. You see these people walking around. They're young. They're in their late teens. And they seem incapable of doing anything except for finding the next high. They can't hold a job. They can't function as men, as women. They're just looking for the next experience. And that's what our society has produced. Here's what it says in Psalm 119. How can a young person stay on the path of purity by living according to your word? But how can they do that when they haven't been taught? It's sad. So the reason I'm bringing this up is because I know there are parents in the room and parents watching. And I think this might be controversial. I think the second best thing you can do is steep your child in the word of God. And the reason I say second best is because I think for me personally, you might disagree, the very best thing you can do is just love your child. And the reason I say love first and then secondly, the word of God is because when I evangelize, I run into a lot of people who um, know the Bible front and back. They know it maybe better than I do. They were raised very religious, but they are so resistant to the gospel. And it's because they had religion crammed down their throat as they grew up, but their parents didn't love them. And it doesn't work. So I know that there's 
amazing parents in our church who you can see they love their kids and they're raising their kids to know the Bible. And I want to commend everyone for doing that because that's so crucial for them because they're not going to find it in the world, but they're going to get it from you. Love the kids yourself first so they know what love is. Then they'll be ready to receive God's love and they'll be open to what you teach them. I was blessed. My dad and mom, they claim they read the Bible to me when I was in the womb. I can't confirm that, but that's what they say. And we had, my dad insisted on calling them evening vespers, which made me feel like um, we were in the 1800s, like we were in Little House on the Prairie or something. But we, we did this in the evenings. We had to memorize the Bible before school, and my dad made a game out of it. And uh, all those things, you know, those verses come back to me now, and they affect my life to this day. So parents, you know, be very deliberate about getting your children steeped in the Word of God. And if you accompany it with love, you will be blessing your children for the rest of their lives. Can I get an amen on that one? All right. Of course, Scripture is not just for kids, and it's never too late to start learning. If you're old enough to remember, say, 9-11, you're not a kid anymore. Isn't that strange? Kids can't remember 9-11. You know, you're smarter now, you're wiser now, you're more mature now, and you can still have the Bible change your life. I want to talk about that a little bit. I know many believers in this church and in the broader Christian community who are overcomers in so many ways, who are living joy-filled, victorious lives that you don't really see outside of the Christian church. You don't really see this kind of joy out in the world. And they're living fruitful lives for the kingdom, and if there's one quality that defines these people, all of them are steeped in the Word of God. All of them have lifestyles of devotional time in the Word. Every joy-filled Christian I know, every overcomer, every happy warrior, the Word seeps out of their pores. You can see in here, in their lives, their lives are salted with Scripture. It's wonderful to see. I don't mean people who go around quoting Scripture to show off or... To, to judge people. That's not what I'm talking about. But you know what I mean. You've, you've seen it. It's, um, it comes out in better ways than that, and it's, it's beautiful to see. So there's a right way and a wrong way to read the Bible. You guys have probably heard of John Steinbeck. He wrote The Grapes of Wrath and uh, East of Eden, a few other classics. And he, here's someone who was very smart, but he, he grew up with a really religious background, uh, but he ended up as an agnostic. And it comes out in his works. But there's one in East of Eden. There's a mother who is super religious. And I think it's autobiographical because this woman just, she reads the Bible every day, but the way she reads it is just mechanical. Like she just reads it and doesn't think about it. And then she stops. Then the next day she picks up where she left off. She does it again. And it's like it doesn't get anywhere on the inside. And then she spends the rest of the time judging everybody. And I'm thinking... If you come away from the word of God, and especially the message of Christ, judging people, you didn't understand what you were reading. Um, Anthony mentioned two weeks ago with his sermon on the Bible, James 1.22 says, Don't be hearers only of the word, but be doers. And so, there is a right way and a wrong way to read the Bible. And the Bible talks about this very question. In the very first psalm, you guys know the first psalm, it tells us about the blessed man, or the blessed woman. Modern trans translations say the blessed person. They used to say the blessed man. It only took 3,000 years to get women in there, and so they can be blessed too, but that's a good thing, right? 
So here's what it says. Blessed is the person who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers, but their delight is in the law of the Lord. That's what they used to call the scriptures back then, because they didn't have the whole Bible yet. And on his law they meditate day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. We want to prosper? We like prospering? Yeah. What does it say to prosper? Look, it's really simple. It says they meditate on the word. They delight in the word. They do that as a lifestyle. What is the key quality here? Adoring God's word. Put a mental pin in that image, and we're going to look at one more. This is Joshua 1, starting in verse 6. Be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers. This is God talking to Joshua. He's commissioning him to take over Moses' leadership role. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn to it from the right or the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Do we want to be prosperous and successful? What's the key here? Again, a lifestyle of meditation on the Word of God. So Joshua, imagine yourself in his shoes. The great leader who split the Red Sea in two and produced water from a rock. Moses has gone to heaven. And now that burden of leadership is placed on you. And you're youngish and maybe tempted to feel overwhelmed. He needed this heart-to-heart -heart from the Lord. He needed this encouragement. And God told him, there's a way to succeed at whatever you do. There's a way to prosper at whatever you do. Yes, you're going to need to be strong and courageous, but there's a way to have a foundation that will allow you to have that strength and that courage. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Are you starting to notice a pattern here? Whatever he does prospers. I'm going to tell you a kind of an oddball story here. This is earlier from my Oxford, from my Scotland experience. Uh, when I was at George Fox getting my bachelor's degree, I had some time off, and so I got into a video game called Civilization, where you build cities and, and conquer other cities, and you get a big empire. So you're looking at this map with all your cities, like, a, like you're taking over the world. And I figured it's okay to be a megalomaniac and a tyrant and a world conqueror if it's pretend. So I took all my cities and I renamed them after myself. So you have Davidopolis, David City, City of David, Davidville, and, you know, what could go wrong? It's just, it's just being fun. Well, I made a strategic error. I was playing in the living room and I, I had to get up and leave the room for some reason. And uh, when I came back, to my horror, we, had, we lived in an apartment, me and my roommates, and there were, some, we had, there were some guests who would come over. They were pretty girls. And they were standing in our apartment living room, looking at my computer screen, laughing. And I thought, oh no, they see all the names of my cities. And they turned to me and said, well, they were particularly affronted by David Lehem, because they thought it sounded too much like Bethlehem, which is what I was going for. A little bit blasphemous. 
And man, they didn't let me forget that one. Even months later, they would see me on campus and say, how's things going in Davidopolis? <laughs> people, would, people would look like, what? But, you know, that just goes to show you. It's never okay to be a megalomaniac, I guess. But I asked the Lord when I was studying for an image of what happens in our lives when we meditate on his word. And for some reason, he brought me this image of my map with all these cities with names that were after myself. And I thought, I'm trying to block that memory. I'm trying to forget that. Um, so why are you bringing this up? And he said that these cities were like strongholds and the enemies who I was fighting were unable to conquer. And in our soul, you know, there's a battle. And there can be strongholds for good. You know that stronghold, strongholds aren't always the enemy strongholds. You can have a godly stronghold. And the way you get a godly stronghold is by meditating on a revelation from Scripture, claiming it for your own, and when you live from it, it's a strong point that will prevent the enemy from taking any territory that belongs to you. And it allows you to go forth and take territory from the enemy that's supposed to belong to you. So if you can imagine your own life like a map and you have strong points throughout your soul and there are areas the Lord has given you and maybe you possess them and maybe the enemy still possesses that point because of a belief that you should be holding that you don't yet hold or an area of giftedness that you haven't yet walked into, that's areas that you were meant to claim and the Lord wants you to step in and claim that and hold it as a strong point. And you get those strong points by meditating on scripture and claiming them for yourself and making it your own. And when you have a strong point based on scripture, no one on earth, no one, no enemy in the heavenly realm can take that from you. It's yours. And so I thought that was a pretty good image, actually, of what God can do. Joshua's delight in the word established godly strongholds on the inside. And those strongholds enabled him to overcome enemy strongholds on the outside. So you remember the story of Jericho. The walls came tumbling down. That was an enemy stronghold. Why was he able to overcome an enemy stronghold? Because he had the godly strongholds on the inside first. So how do we overcome the enemy in our lives? We get godly strongholds from meditating on scripture. And then we can go forth and take ground that's meant for us. And we will. Scripture opens up new vistas of possibilities for us that we didn't even dream of. You, you might remember the children of Israel thought too small sometimes. Sometimes they got real scared and they said, it's too hard, send us back to Egypt. We were used to that. At least we had bread in Egypt. You know, when they complained in the desert. And what did God, did he say, okay, you know, you're right, it's, it's, it's too tough for you. No. He loved them too much to let them think that small. He said, I'm not going to even let you make that choice. You're going on. You are going to be conquerors. And for us, he's saying, I want you to occupy all the territory I want to give you. So don't think too small. Don't think too weak. Claim the ground I'm giving you. And the only way to do it, my friends, is what we find in here. I want to end with a testimony from Dan Daly. He's the son of our beloved Pat and Margie Daly. And he's talking about the challenges of being someone who meditates on the word in a busy world. Because we get busy, don't we? And when you're working and you have kids, there's not a lot of time, it seems, 
And he was at one of the busiest times in his life. He was going to college. It was a really hard year. He was overwhelmed with activities. And right now he's a PhD student, so it's even more so. But he decided, I'm just going to first and foremost, it's like tithing. I'm going to give God an hour every day with my friends. We're going to study the Bible and pray. And then everything else will be built around that. So here's his testimony of what happened. When I was a junior in college, I had a strong desire to hold a daily meeting for Bible study and prayer. A small group of fellow students and I began meeting every, hour, every evening for an hour. We kept it up for the whole semester. It was certainly countercultural to set aside time every day. Further, the, t the time we chose to meet was right in the middle of prime time for homework and other student life activities. I remember worrying at the start of the semester that I would not have enough time for my homework and this prayer meeting. By the way, I happen to know he graduated summa cum laude from this university. Throughout, the next, throughout that term, I repeatedly experienced God's favor with my coursework. I had deadlines extended, meetings pushed back. I never lost standing with my professors, and I went through life with a sense of purpose and connection to God and the students praying and studying with me. It was an illustration of one of Jesus' mysterious teachings that power and life flow from sitting at his feet and trusting him with everything. God inspired me with this desire and gave me what I needed to follow his lead. That's his way. I think he knows what he's talking about. So let's make time for this. It's worth it. And it's going to be good. Amen? All right. God bless you. Pastor Dan. Thank you, David.